Hello there. How lovely that you've come. Um, yeah, my name's Henry, and we're going for a walk around Westminster. Oh, what should I tell you about myself? I'm, um, I'm 54, I have large Churchillian jowls, and, uh, I work just round the corner. So, I'll lead the way. Before we set off, though, I want you to take a deep breath. The air seethes with political history. For 800 years, Westminster has been the seat of English government. To begin with, we were ruled by kings and queens, but gradually their plump royal fingers were prized off our throats and the mighty British people started to govern themselves. And Westminster is where they do it. This is where the people choose their own path. I've spent my entire working life in the government buildings today. I know how they operate. Achievement treads falls arm in arm with blunder. Government is a human enterprise. People make mistakes. Yeah, they forget things and they lie. Today I'll show you that the double helix of Westminster's DNA is one strand excellence and one strand shame. Now, let's get going. Right now, we're standing by the columns at the top of the steps of St. John's, Smith Square. Let's move to the bottom of the steps. If we could just uh, stop for a moment at the pavement, there's something I should mention. I have to collect something from a pub. I mean, it's nothing for you to worry about, but I should pick it up sooner rather than later. How best to explain? Um, there's something called the national budget. It's a sort of plan for Britain's economy. The government doesn't intend to unveil the budget for another two weeks, but I've left an early draft of it in a pub. Goodness knows what'll happen if it leaks to the press. Come to think of it, I don't think that's ever happened before. Not the entire budget in any case. That's a tradition I'd rather like to maintain. So we'll wander towards the pub and pick it up, before any nosy journalists get hold of it. But first we'll take a stroll around Smith Square. There's something I want to point out before we get going. So, turn left and we'll start walking. Stay on this block. Keeping left, we're going to walk all the way around the church. As we go, keep an eye out for anxious-looking men and women shuffling about in suits. These are our beloved civil servants, of whom I am one. Our job is to implement the decisions made by the elected government. So we don't set policy, that's for the politicians. They might decide to tighten financial regulation, introduce a new tax, or make every police officer dress in suede dungarees. It doesn't matter. Whatever the policy, the civil service makes it happen. But what was I going to show you? Ah! Yes, as we walk, look up to your left, to the very top of St John's. Have you noticed the big towers on each corner of the building? The story goes that in the 1700s, when Queen Anne commissioned the church, her architects asked what it should look like. Queen Anne expressed her royal command by kicking over a nearby footstool and shouting, Like that! That's the legend, anyway. The truth is that this area used to be a marshland. The church started sinking before it was even finished. 
The towers were a necessary part of the design to help the building balance. And when you look beyond the rumours and the myths, utterly foreseeable blunders are so often the foundation upon which Westminster is built. Now then, let's head to the pub and retrieve my livelihood, shall we? When you reach the steps where we met, turn right. The road ahead of us is Lord North Street. We're going down there. Welcome to Lord North Street. We're now backstage, a few minutes' walk from Parliament. In the 1900s, this was a hub of backroom deals and off-the-record negotiations. Prime Ministers like Anthony Eden and Harold Wilson lived on this street. Before then, in the 19th century, it was where politicians kept their mistresses. If I didn't have to pick up the blasted budget, I'd tell you stories about every house. We'll just stop when we get to number eight. It's on your right, the one with faded bomb shelter signs to the left of the door. Here we are, outside number eight, Lord North Street. An enigmatic man called Brendan Bracken used to live here. He was a self-made man who became a newspaper owner and politician. He was also the closest friend of British wartime leader Winston Churchill. Churchill lived just around the corner, but he spent a lot of time in this house. This was in the 30s, during what are known as Churchill's wilderness years. He'd taken much of the blame for a disastrous military campaign in World War I, and for a time he was shunned by the establishment. Look up to the windows on the middle floor. That's the Churchill room. He stayed here so often that Bracken gave him his own study and bedroom. Imagine, the old lion pacing those floorboards. One of the few British voices publicly calling for action against the rising Nazi party. He was said to talk about the Nazis so often that people actually left dinner parties through boredom. But this is the house where he and Brendan Bracken plotted Churchill's return to office. And when he eventually became Prime Minister at the start of World War II, Churchill rallied the nation during its darkest hour. Brendan Bracken moved into the Prime Minister's residence with Churchill during the war. The two of them were so close that people even thought Bracken was Churchill's son. I mean, it wasn't true, though I imagine Bracken enjoyed the rumour. According to his servants, he used to instruct them to burst in on dinner parties and pretend that the Prime Minister was on the line. Churchill appointed Bracken his Minister of Information during World War II. Peek in through the windows on the ground floor. You're prying into the front room of the man who was responsible for Britain's wartime propaganda. Bracken's job was to control information, and he allegedly ruled his department with a rod of iron. One of his civil servants was the writer, George Orwell, and Orwell later used Bracken as inspiration for his book, 1984. Brendan Bracken became the all-seeing big brother, and the Ministry of Information was replaced by the dreaded Ministry of Truth. <laughs> this is why Orwell goes down in my book as the patron saint of disgruntled civil servants. I mean, we've all dreamt of getting one over on our bosses. But George Orwell actually immortalised his as one of the greatest villains in English literature. Now, let's move on, before I say anything about my own boss that I might regret. So, continue walking towards the end of the street. 
Oh, incidentally, even number eight isn't free from disgrace. A former government minister called Jonathan Aitken lived there in the 90s. He lied in court during a libel case and was sent to prison for perjury. Like most places in Westminster, blunder and greatness reside under the same roof in number eight. Right, where the road ends, we'll cross straight over and into Cowley Street. Continue straight into Cowley Street. You can see a street sign on the left corner of the entrance to the road. Near the sign is a black lamp post. That's a gas lamp. We'll follow Cowley Street round to the left. Going right's a dead end. Now, gas lamps like that once covered the whole of London and had to be lit by hand every night. They mostly have batteries now, but even some of those have to be changed every fortnight. Oh, sorry, just a second. Ah, I might just let that ring out. I'd rather not talk to anyone from the office until I've recovered the budget. They're bound to ask where I am, and I'd rather they didn't know about this mess. I mean, as a rule, I have no problem with lying to my colleagues, but I do try and avoid it where possible. OK, make sure you're on the left-hand side of the road. We're going to stop for a minute at the corner where the road turns right. We're standing outside number 19, the house on the corner. Do you see the black cone-shaped things that flank the gate? Those are called link snuffers. So before gas lamps, London's streets were pitch black at night. So if you could afford it, you paid a link boy to guide you through the darkness. Once he'd seen you home, the link boy would extinguish the flaming rag he used as a torch in the link snuffer outside your house. Now, let's continue walking towards the end of the road. When we get there, we're going to turn left. Yes, back then, you ventured out into London's unlit streets at your own peril. Before this area became affluent, it was known for its thieves and cutthroats. But the introduction of gas lamps made London a much safer place at night. I could really use a link boy right now to shine a light on the whereabouts of this budget. Then again, it might raise a whole new set of problems if I'm seen strolling around Westminster with a torch-bearing miner at my side. At the end of this street, we're turning left, into Great College Street. Ah, you can hear a protest on Parliament Square. I do love it when protesters make themselves heard back here on these hushed streets. And I like to think that it reminds the wealthy politicians who live in these houses, just whom they work for. Now then, up ahead you can see that the road continues to the left. That's where we'll turn right. So, turn right and pass through the medieval gateway into Dean's Yard. Keep walking straight on. We're going to pause way ahead where the path turns left. You're currently walking through Westminster School. When it was founded, 900 years ago, it was free. That's why it's called a public school today, despite being outrageously expensive. The school is joined to Westminster Abbey, which is the white church you see looming up in front of us. 
It was built in the 1200s, but there's been a church on this spot since the 7th century. Now, technically, Westminster Abbey isn't a church, nor even an abbey, but a royal peculiar, meaning it's under the jurisdiction of the monarch. Westminster Abbey is where almost every English monarch is crowned. The first coronation here was the French invader William the Conqueror in 1066. As he approached the abbey, William mistook the cheers coming from nearby buildings as signs of a rebellion. His soldiers promptly set fire to the surrounding houses and by the grace of God, he crushed the non-existent uprising. Now then, just before the path turns left, I want you to stop for a moment. There's a gateway to our right. We're about to go through there, but there's a good chance a guard will ask you where you're going. If he does, pause the audio and tell him you're only going a few steps beyond the gate and that you won't go any further into the abbey. If you want to come back another time and explore further inside, I'll tell you how to do that in a few minutes. For now, there's something I want to show you in this small side entrance. And we'll see the Abbey from a more impressive angle shortly. OK, let's go in. Pass through the gate and take seven steps. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now, stop. There are scores of distinguished corpses buried inside this Abbey. Statesmen, poets, scientists, monarchs. Geoffrey Chaucer, the writer of the Canterbury Tales, was buried here in 1400. Charles Dickens is buried here, as well as Isaac Newton and the father of evolutionary biology, Charles Darwin. But there's only one grave you're not allowed to walk over. That's the tomb of the unknown warrior. It's the resting place of a British soldier who was killed in the First World War. He was never identified, and his grave represents all the soldiers who've died unknown and unburied. Do you see the white marble monument roughly seven steps after the gate? Make sure you're standing in front of it. This is a memorial to Captain James Cornwall. He died at the Battle of Toulon in 1744 after a French cannonball blasted his legs clean off. There were three battles at Toulon in the 1700s, and Britain lost all of them. Reach out, touch the marble. It's over 250 years old. When this was cut, the British Empire spanned a third of the globe. America was just a British colony, and Germany wouldn't become a unified country for another 120 years. The world was a different place. Look around this hall. In here, hardly anything has changed. Captain Cornwall, on the other hand, has two stone angels hovering around a marble likeness of his head. A great tribute to a fallen hero, except that James Cornwall was reputed to be a coward. He was accused of cowardice by his peers twice in the year before his death. Look top of the monument. There's an angel to the right of Captain Cornwall's head. Do you see the lion cowering by its feet? It's the least fearsome lion.
I've ever seen. The poor thing looks terrified. I wonder if it isn't a subtle nod to Captain Cornwall's doubtful reputation before he died a hero's death. Come on, let's leave James to his timid lion. Oh, when we get to the pub, I think I'll have a whisky to toast his unparalleled valour. Let's head out of this hall and go straight on. We can't stay backstage all day. Come with me, straight out of Westminster Abbey and along the path. Time to ready ourselves for the real world. Uh, there's a red post box ahead. We're turning right beyond that through a large gateway. We'll be mingling with the tourists and the voters in a second. Once we're through the gate and out of Westminster School, we'll stop briefly in front of Westminster Column. I want you to stop before you get to the large column straight ahead of you. So, stop here. We're going to turn left in a second, but first, look to your right. That's the western facade of Westminster Abbey. If you want to come back another time to visit or read poetry above Tennyson's grave, then you can buy tickets from the gift shop below the right-hand tower. You can also enter for free if you want to attend a service, which they hold most evenings. Now, turn left and start walking away from the abbey. With the Westminster Column on our right, head up the street. We're crossing the road at those traffic lights up ahead. You can see a Barclays bank across the road. Aim for that. Oh, good Lord, it's Ellie from the office. She's my deputy and she'll be wondering where I am. Nope, I'm not going to answer that. When a minor blunder is unfolding, the first rule is to avoid all contact with your colleagues. Right, there's a Barclays bank on the other side of the road. I'll leave you to cross at the lights and we'll meet outside Barclays. Okay. As you face Barclays, there's a zebra crossing to the right, near that gold post box. We'll cross there, but before we do, turn and look back towards Westminster Abbey. Just to the right of it, in the distance, you can see the Victoria Tower. Now that's the highest point of the Palace of Westminster, taller even than Big Ben. That tower contains every single act of parliament starting back in 1497, when Henry VII was king. Just imagine, it's an archive of millions of original documents. For example, the death warrant for Charles I, signed by Oliver Cromwell himself. Charles lost a bitter civil war against Cromwell, who dissolved the monarchy and set himself up as Lord Protector of the nation. When he died, he was buried in Westminster Abbey, only to be dug up and posthumously executed by the next king. Every document in the Victoria Tower tells the story of England's journey from absolute monarchy to our much-copied democratic system. I like to think of the tower as a huge, unburied time capsule containing all of Westminster's glory and shame for future generations to pick over. Now, let's cross over and keep going straight on. We're a few minutes from the pub now. Let's keep walking up past the flag hanging ahead. 
That's the entrance to Methodist Hall, where most inquiries into government blunders are chaired. Oh, inquiry. Such an unpleasant word. During an inquiry, it's every man or woman for themselves. Well-meaning civil servants like me get dragged out from the shadows and thrust into the limelight. We're forced to sit before a committee of leering MPs and be deferential as they dissect every detail of a decision we forgot about months ago. I'm much happier behind the scenes. Mind you, before the civil service, I uh, almost became an actor. <laughs> I never quite made it, though. Apparently, my face was too boring. Although what made Mother such an expert, I never knew. I mean, really, anyone can see the Jowls Ooze character. Extraordinary. You know, when I'm feeling blue, I like to give them a good shake. Always cheers me up. There's a pub coming up on our left. It's called the Westminster Arms. That's not the pub we're after. As soon as we're past it, we'll turn left down Lewisham Street. It's a narrow street for pedestrians only, and the national budget is lying in a pub at the other end of it. Head straight down this alley. The pub's right at the end. It's called the Two Chairman. The name comes from the chaps who used to carry wealthy Londoners round on sedan chairs in the 18th century. Back then, the streets of London were teeming with horses. They pulled carts, carriages, even buses. The noise of their hooves on the cobbles was immense, as was the volume of manure they produced. Each horse gifted the city between 15 and 35 pounds of the stuff daily. This eventually led to the great horse manure crisis of 1894. The Times newspaper predicted that within 50 years, every street in London would be buried under nine feet of horse dung. Fortunately, Henry Ford came along and saved the day with his affordable cars. As a result, London developed a less horse-centric transport system and the rising tide of horse feces was finally turned. But before it was, rich Londoners liked to keep their shoes clean by hiring a couple of chairmen to carry them about like pharaohs. The pub's named in honour of the chairman because they used to drink there while waiting for gentry to come out of a nearby cockfighting theatre. Here we go. The pub's on our right. Yeah, let's stop for a minute. I'm actually feeling a little flustered. Ugh, my jowls are tingling. If this budget's not at the pub, it will be the end of my career. I'd appreciate it if you waited outside for a moment. I won't be long. If the budget's not in there, I'd rather you didn't see my reaction. It's possible I'll disgrace myself. Hi, hello. Yeah, and I was in here last night. I was wondering if you found a stack of papers. Yeah, a medium-sized stack of papers, buff folder. You don't remember seeing them. Would you mind checking behind the bar? No, I mean properly checking. This is important. I'm talking to you. 
Need a link, boy? No? Suit yourself. Either someone else has found it, or I didn't leave it there, or I don't know what, but the national budget is not in that pub. Anyone could have it. Thirty years, and it's all over. I've only ever worked in Westminster, and now I've driven my career into a sinkhole. I'd better tell Ellie. I'll get her to tell the Chancellor. He's the Minister in charge of the Treasury. He'll be livid. Oh my God! He'll sack me in seconds! No! Wait, Henry, not like this. Oh, how depressing. There must be a better course. I know. What if I tell the Chancellor myself? Face to face. Yes, I'll head to Downing Street and look my executioner in the eye. Sorry, Ellie but I've made up my mind. Right, now then, with our backs to the pub, we'll turn right. Do you see that red post box straight ahead? There's an entrance to some stairs just to the left of it. They're called cockpit stairs, named after a royal cockfighting theatre that used to stand nearby. The real cockfighting has always taken place in the Houses of Parliament. <laughs> Head straight down cockpit stairs, and when you reach the bottom, turn right into the wide avenue of Birdcage Walk. We're going to Downing Street to see the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Once we've negotiated the stairs, we're turning right. Going left would take us all the way to Buckingham Palace. Yeah, it would be a touch presumptuous of me to go that way. Only Prime Ministers go to the palace when they've lost their jobs. They offer their resignation directly to the monarch. I imagine kings and queens accept resignations with a bow of the royal head and perhaps a few choice words from the royal mouth. I doubt the Chancellor will act with such grace. I suspect there'll be a violent discharge of obscenities followed swiftly by the sack. Oh, the Chancellor manages the nation's coffers and is in charge of all things financial. But a few hundred years ago, even the Chancellor couldn't walk where we are now. Only the royal family and the Grand Falconer could use this road. It was opened to the public in 1828, and within ten years, it had become one of London's best-known gay cruising spots. Oh, I wonder how the Grand Falconer reacted to this transformation of his private street. See, I hope he took full advantage because if there's a better chat-up tool than a giant bird of prey perched coquettishly on a leather falconry glove, I'm yet to find it. Keep walking up this street and cross straight over any roads that dissect it. 
will continue up this street until we reach Parliament Square, where you'll see Big Ben and the House of Commons. There's a road coming up called Stories Gate. Cross over it and keep walking straight on. Ah, a text from Ellie. She'll be somewhere inside that white building on our left. That's the Treasury, where my office is. It was from one of those windows in 1990 that I watched a riot out here, where we're standing. This was when Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister and she just introduced something called the poll tax. Under the previous rates system, local taxes were only paid by homeowners. But the poll tax was a flat charge paid by every adult. It didn't matter how much or how little you earned, how rich or how poor you were. Everyone paid the same. So it was deeply unfair on those with less. I remember crowds surging down Birdcage Walk, where we are now. I can almost see my sad, jowly little face peering down at the crowds. Now, I was caught in my first moral dilemma in Westminster. Uh, the first of many. I didn't want to work on the poll tax. I knew it was going to bleed those who could least afford it. But if you resign every time you have to do something you don't like, you won't last six months in Westminster. Now. Keep walking up this road until you reach Parliament Square. I want you to stop for a second. You're about to enter Parliament Square. Not hard Westminster that truly belongs to the people. We'll walk around the square and end up in front of Big Ben. Ignore the traffic lights straight ahead. We're not crossing there. Instead, we're following the path round to the right. So Big Ben will be on our left. I want you to walk along this street until you're level with the statue of Abraham Lincoln. We'll stop briefly when we reach him. He's coming up on our right in just a moment. Yeah, he's the stern-looking chap standing in front of a chair. His name is engraved in the stone below his feet. You're standing in front of a statue of President Lincoln. Now, turn your back on him and look out across Parliament Square. On the other side of the square, you can see the Palace of Westminster. On the left side of the palace, near a big Ben, is the House of Commons. That's where our members of Parliament sit to vote on laws. On that side of the building, all the chairs and carpets are green. But on the other side, to the right, everything is red. That's where the Lords sit. They're unelected and almost a hundred inherit their positions. That unelected representatives wield any power is a slight hangover from the days of upper-class rule, but things change slowly around here. The Lords can't veto or amend laws. They can only send them back to the Commons for revision. Right. With your back to President Lincoln, turn right and walk down this street until you reach some traffic lights. That's where we'll cross the road and turn left. I'll meet you on the other side. OK, we're aiming for Big Ben, so head straight along this road and we'll turn left after the next crossing. Look across the road to your left. That side of the square, facing the House of Commons, is where a man called Brian Hoare lived, in a tent, for all 
almost 10 years. He lived in this busy square day and night, surrounded by anti-war placards. It was his peace camp where he protested Britain's foreign policy. I mean, the government tried to move him out of here many times. In 2008, around 80 police officers arrived at his tent to dismantle his signs and placards. But in almost 10 years, Brian Hoare only ever left his peace camp a handful of times. Keep going straight on and cross over. We'll turn left after these lights. Go and find a spot by the railings with a good view of Big Ben. I'll meet you there. Well, here we are. We've made it. All is well with the world. We are standing in the presence of a celebrity clock. Doff your cap and bend your knee. The first thing you should know is that it's not called Big Ben. That is the name of the bell inside, which weighs 13 and a half tons. The tower was originally called, imaginatively enough, the Clock Tower, and was renamed the Elizabeth Tower in 2012 in honour of the Queen's Golden Jubilee. Yeah, it was built in the 1800s, after the old medieval Palace of Westminster was destroyed by a fire. Now, most people don't know that there's a prison cell halfway up the tower. It was built to hold members of parliament who upset the monarch. Sadly, it hasn't been used for over a hundred years. It's said that the last prisoner held there was the suffragette, Emmeline Pankhurst. And she certainly endured many injustices during her lifetime, but despite the rumors being imprisoned halfway up a giant clock tower, wasn't one of them. Westminster was very cruel to the suffragettes and for a long time their cause was completely ignored. But Emmeline Pankhurst dedicated her life to gaining women the right to vote. She and her fellow suffragettes smashed windows, starved themselves in prison and even attacked the Prime Minister on the street. Like Churchill during his wilderness years, she never gave up. Unlike Churchill, she didn't live long enough to see herself vindicated. She died in 1928 two weeks before all women were granted the vote. OK, let's not dally any longer. Facing Big Ben, we'll turn left and start walking. Head to the end of the street and cross straight over at the traffic lights. Once you're over the road, cross the road again at the traffic lights to the left. So, this is a double crossing and we're aiming for the street corner over to our left. Yeah, it might take a few minutes, so I'll meet you over there. When you've made it over both crossings, you'll see a red phone box. I'll be waiting by that. Turn left. Cross the street. I'll wait for you there. So, this is Whitehall. Let's turn right and walk away from Pard Square, following the row of red phone boxes. Downing Street, few minutes away. Chancellor's there at the moment. He's probably working on the national budget, oblivious that the press might have it already. Oh, I have so many friends who work in the buildings on this street. Revenue and Customs is the large one on our left. Behind it is the Department for Culture, Media and Sport. I can already hear the news speeding into their offices like air into a vacuum. <laughs> Old Henry's lost the national budget. He left it in a pub, the old soap. The Chancellor's going to tear his jowls off. 
We're going straight over the small road ahead, by the way. And the big gate we're about to see on our left is the official entrance to the Foreign Office. Downing Street's coming up. I suppose the Chancellor will have to tell his next-door neighbour about this mess. That's the Prime Minister. The PM's residence was originally a gift from King George II to England's first-ever Prime Minister, Sir Robert Walpole, in 1732. Walpole declined the gift. Instead, he made Downing Street the official residence for Prime Ministers to come. I wonder how many of today's politicians would turn down a free Georgian mansion. Ah, there's the cenotaph on our right. That's the white monument in the middle of the road. It's Britain's foremost war memorial. Cenotaph derives from the Greek words for empty tomb, and it commemorates all those who died graveless in the world wars. Yes, just when you're beginning to enjoy your self-pity, something always comes along to blow it out of the water. OK. Soon you'll see some black gates on your left. They're the entrance to Downing Street. When you see the policemen with big guns, you'll know you're in the right place. Downing Street. Stand on the left-hand side, near the visitor holding pen. If you look down the street, number 10 has black brickwork and is on the right. It's about 60 yards down. That's where the Prime Minister lives. You can't see much of it from behind these gates. Not long ago, Downing Street was open to the public. And in the early 1900s, there often wasn't a policeman on the door. That's how the suffragettes were able to walk right up to the Prime Minister's house and throw bricks through his windows. It's a special feeling passing through these gates. I'll miss that. At least I'm not being voted out of my job by millions of people. God knows how that feels. Margaret Thatcher, the supposed Iron Lady, actually cried as she left. When Prime Ministers leave Downing Street for the last time, they're mobbed by television crews and journalists. Not me, though. I'll get shouted at for 20 minutes, then I'll quietly leave the building, hop on a bus and sob all the way home. Hardly a fitting end to my career. I suppose I could always go down in flames, give the Chancellor a piece of my mind. Yeah, they talk about that in the office for a good few months. If I must be remembered for a blunder, why not be remembered on my own terms? I'll stand my ground. I'll give him both barrels and let the Chancellor know he is losing a hell of a civil servant. Right. Maybe a little drink first. Come on, let's get to a pub. Besides, it's traditional for a condemned man to have a whiskey before the end. At least I think it is. It is possible that I just want a whiskey. Turn around and stand with your back to the gates of Downing Street. You can see a crossing slightly to your left. That's where we'll cross the road. And when you're halfway across, stop on the island in the middle. I'll meet you there. OK, we're standing safely on the island in the middle of the road. Take a look to your left. You're looking at the large black monument, similar in shape to the cenotaph. That's the monument to the women of World War II. You can see some uniforms sculpted as if hanging off it. Each suit of clothes represents a different job 
carried out by women during the war. The monument was unveiled shamefully late in Britain's history in 2005. And it might never have been built if not for the superb general knowledge of a politician called Baroness Betty Boothroyd. She was the first female Speaker of the House of Commons. She won big on the TV quiz show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Rather than funnel the cash into her paragliding habit, she donated a huge chunk to building this monument. Continue to the other side of the road, and when we reach the pavement, we're going right. So, turn right and walk down Whitehall. Baroness Boothroyd could really teach today's expenses grabbing politicians a thing or two about civic duty. And I'm not joking about the paragliding, she took up the sport in her 60s. Ah, the cenotaph is coming up on our right. Once we're level with it, turn left. There's one thing I must show you before we get to the pub. And that is the strange looking building with horizontal stripes across the brickwork. You'll see it when you reach the cenotaph. Welcome to the Department of Health. Take a good look. Feast your eyes on the pointlessly narrow windows. Drink in the jarring layers of yellow bricks. You're gazing at the most underwhelming government building on Whitehall. But the department within created and maintained something that we Britons are very proud of. The National Health Service. The NHS is the fifth biggest employer in the world and it exists to provide free healthcare to anyone who needs it. It was created in 1947 when Clement Attlee was Prime Minister. Attlee's Minister for Health was a former coal miner called Nye Bevan and the two of them built the first free National Health Service of its kind. Since its creation, other countries have followed suit, but Attlee and Bevan led the way. And it was a gruelling path. World War II had ended just two years earlier, in 1945. The war effort had drained Britain's finances, such that rationing of some foods continued into the 50s. I've worked in the Treasury for a long time, helping control the nation's purse strings, so I know, better than most, how painful it is to fund anything in a time of austerity. That's why I am amazed by Attlee and Bevan's vision and ambition to launch a free national health service straight after the largest and most expensive war in history. Even the nation's doctors thought it was a bad idea. The British Medical Association refused to support the NHS until just months before it launched. Bevan won them round just in time. He said he only managed it after he stuffed the doctor's mouths with gold. The creation of the NHS vastly improved and prolonged the lives of millions of people. And this inexplicably stripy building is its HQ today. The creation of the NHS is an example of Westminster working at its best. Attlee and Bevan saw beyond the immediate political landscape and implemented a policy unambiguously for the people. Now, let's get to the pub before I well up. 
facing the Department of Health, will turn right and walk down Whitehall. There's a pub called the Red Lion coming up on our left. That's where I'll have my whiskey. So we'll keep going till we reach it. Attlee and Bevan were one of Westminster's great partnerships. It's important to have a reliable deputy. I mean, Ellie is my right-hand woman in the Treasury and, well, over the last few years, we've worked on a number of policies that I'm rather proud of. At times like this, it's important to remember the achievements you're proud of because every so often Westminster demands that you do something you don't like. Okay. There's the red lion on our left. Stay with me outside a second. I'm going to call the Chancellor. Oh. This is a sad day. Sad day. Hello, it's Henry Adeen calling for the Chancellor. No, he's not expecting the call, but it's important. He knows who I am. Chancellor, hello. Yes, I wouldn't bother you otherwise. We've um. Well, we've got a situation at the Treasury. What's happened? A copy of the budget is missing. What? Presumed leaked. Well, my assistant team leader left it in a pub last night. Yes, yes, Ellie. Well, she went back today and it was gone. I mean, anyone could have it. Yes, absolutely. Yes, 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 absolutely, Chancellor. Yes, of course. Yes, of course, Chancellor. And I, I apologize on her behalf. And of course, yes, I quite agree. I will tell her to clear her desk right away. I'm so sorry, Chancellor. Not all that sporting on my part, I'll admit. But I had no choice. Ellie will deny it, of course, but it won't help. I'm more senior than her. And, well, I'm a good liar, so I don't foresee too many problems. Right. Time for a whiskey. To mourn the passing of another valued deputy. Why not pop in for a drink yourself? There's been a tavern on this spot since the 1400s. Winston Churchill drank here, as did Clement Attlee, and a host of other Prime Ministers. Do I mean a host? What is the collective noun for Prime Ministers? An inquiry, perhaps. Oh, and if this business with Ellie surprises you, then you should have been listening more closely. Westminster is one strand excellence, one strand shame. I did tell you that. Now then, it's been lovely to meet you, and I do hope I see you around, but I've a whiskey to attend to, so, uh, goodbye. Yeah, if you ever wish to see me again, you know where I'll be. I'll be right here, in Westminster. Bye!